Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 15 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, May the 10th. First, I talk to Tom Ulhorn, who runs the Melbourne-based customer experience consultancy, Tiny CX. It has launched the first practical online CX course, known as the CX Academy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And I'll be talking to Comsec economist Craig James, looking at what's ahead for the markets next week. But first, let's talk to Tom Ulhorn. Tom Ulhorn, uh, tell us about your customer experience strategy company, Tiny CX. Sure. Uh, TinyCX is born out of the realisation that there's this fantastic new set of skill sets coming through in human-centred design practices, so whether that's user experience design, service design, what have you. Um, and they've, they've traditionally been seen as somewhat disruptive to what we would call the traditional marketing services model. And uh, what we see is the ability to incorporate the two into a holistic um, offering, which is yeah, offering which is called customer experience, um, which can stand on the shoulders of marketing and really provides a much more human-centered approach to marketing and affiliated services in growth, design, research, and so on and so forth. So how would a company go about using 
customer experience. Give me an example. Well, that's actually been part of the problem is companies traditionally don't know how to do it, which is why we feel we're feeling a very significant gap in the strategy and research piece. Uh, we focus on five key areas. We have um, brand experience, customer, actual understanding, intimate understanding of customer, systems, processes and people, which is traditionally under the remit of service design, accountability, so the commercial accountability of your assets, um, and then create, incorporating that into a systematic uh, feedback loop to ensure that you remain customer-centric as your business changes and as the environment your business operates in changes. Um, and that's a framework that we've uh, created and some of it's original and some of it's brought from other disciplines like human-centered design, um, schools of thought, marketing schools of thought. Um, and we've put that together um, to really help provide guidance to companies as they look to transition into uh, what some call the experience economy. So what sort of companies are you looking out for? I mean, is it startups? Is it corporates? We kind of work with the mid-market um, is, is, our, uh, is our sweet spot. We like working with challenge brands, so we won't work with the big four banks. We'll work with the fifth. Uh, or alternatively, there is no clear market leader. There is, you know, everyone's in single-digit percentage or in terms of market share. Um, and no one's really able to kind of own that market. So we like those challenges of um, having to not so much disrupt but create a new way of finding and attracting, uh, attracting and keeping market share. So you would have a fair number of startups here, would you? Yes, we do. We have um, about a quarter uh, of our time is dedicated to working with startups, early-stage startups. So bootstrapped startups. Yeah, well, bootstrapped or um, very, very early-stage investment. Um, we don't make money from doing that. Uh, we don't lose money from doing that. We do it because it keeps our ear to the ground in terms of the most effective ways to really shake the market up. Um, so we treat that almost as an R&D exercise, which we can then uh, take our success out of that and apply it to our larger um, clients in the mid-market, which you could argue that in the mid-market there are some scale-ups in there, um, although I'm not too sure we're working with any scale-ups right now. Um, but yeah, you, the, the premise, the whole premise of the way we work is we learn from the next generation of businesses to apply it um, to the more mature businesses that may be struggling um, to try and apply these new techniques. What's really exciting is that uh, I'm not aware of anyone actually in this space doing this sort of stuff. I mean, I'm aware that some universities teach courses mm. in customer experience, but I don't know of anything outside of the academics here. Yeah, I... It's a, it's a very interesting space. There is a lot of um, smoke and mirrors in CX. There's a lot of focus on this grandiose CX vision, customer centricity, make the customer so happy that they'll never consider anyone else again. These very pie-in-the-sky style um, references. Uh, and there's not a lot of substance to it, which is a problem, which is something that we're trying to fix. Um, we do have some educational resources and educational services in this. Um, because, yeah, there's, there's not many organisations who understand how to take the best of what's, you know, a century um, or so of marketing, of marketing academia with this amazing human-centred design and all, all the philosophy coming out of Stanford and stuff like that um, and put them together. And so I think we will see more of that, but we certainly hope 
and like to think that we're blazing a trail in that. Right, okay, okay. And, and going from what you said about uh, sort of single-digit market share, all of them, I mean, what, what you're looking for is uh, to give brands a feeling that they can uh, uh, differentiate themselves in the market. Yeah, and differentiate themselves not in the sense of they appear different uh, and, and at a service level and, and that's it. It's, it's really, from a, if it's, it's in the name of ex- customer experience. The entire experience needs to be differentiated. So the customer is more empowered than ever. Technology is such a great enabler. It's not what it was 50 years ago um, to, to sell to someone. It's, it's a much more complex and empowered customer. So um, differentiation really needs to exist from what we'd call the start of the journey being awareness right through to the end of the journey being advocacy. And, uh, and so is this uh, an online delivery? So the education piece is online, but our services are face-to-face. Um, we try to be as uh, remote and um, efficient as possible in the way that we do a lot of our kind of what we'd call the, the grunt work. Um, so that we have more time face-to-face with customers to actually provide the real value-adds in terms of knowledge transfer, um, ensuring that any assets we put in um, remain sustainable long after we're gone or out of the picture. So, yeah, there is the education pieces online um, to a degree. There's also some face-to-face education, um, but the actual services delivery is uh, face-to-face. Do you have uh, workshops, private group workshops, uh full-day sessions? I mean, how does it work? Yeah, so we have um, a mix mixture of uh, offerings. So we do have an online just pay once and you'll have access to the entire course. Uh, and that's um, priced at $200 um, to upskill and CX. Um, then for uh, startups and startup founders who want to be um, get a little bit more face time, a little bit more interactive, we'll have... Um, uh, small group workshops and then for enterprises or, or the mid-market um, where we can work with one specific organisation we can upskill an entire team so it can be a marketing team, a product team um, or ideally a, uh, a diverse uh, cross-discipline team. How do you, how do you find your customers? Um, we rely primarily on uh, word of mouth we have a very very strong customer base who are very happy to sing our praises um, we also um, do a lot of events, um, a lot of speaking, and um, are pushing more in this thought leadership space around um, our writing as well. So, right, okay, okay. So, so basically, you're, you're pushing into that uh, thought leadership space. Yeah, there's, there's really um, this. The, we've identified, and several others have identified um, and told us that there's really no thought leader in CX in, on a global scale. Certainly not in Australia. Um, we do have a rather large push, um, a CX-led push by the big four consultancies into CMO advisory, uh, PwC and KPMG, for example, both have their own um, groups around that. Um, and they do mention CX uh, a lot and, and allude to it and they hire CX leads. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch that space. Um, but they see it as an element um, within their broader business. So they're not taking that thought leadership just yet. But, you, but your company is very much up against those big consultancies. 
yeah, we're, we are up against. I think because we want, like from our perspective, everybody wins if we can get CX right. We have a very, very solid structured approach to CX that is evidence-based. Like it's, it's worked time and time again for three years now. And what we are happy to do is to share that because if we can get a really good accountable approach to CX um, from a strategic perspective, everyone wins. Uh, there is a large degree of uh, cowboyism out there currently um, and that's not good for anyone. So yes, we're up against it, but also we, we see um, our business model much more collaborative um, and if we can have KPMG... Um, seeing what we do and how we do it and building on that even, um, then that's a win from our perspective. Can you ever see yourselves working with the big consultancies? Absolutely. So that will be the end game, is it? Um, <laughs> that's, that, well, that's a path for growth, isn't it? Yes. Um, yes, there is. there has been interest to a degree from um, a nameless consultancy. Well, <laughs> well, that's, that's quite exciting for you. It's, it is. Because it means uh, uh, Tiny CX will grow and won't be so tiny anymore. No. Well, actually, we, we do hope to stay tiny. Um, the thing we do uh, that's different in our approach to scaling is we, we don't hire juniors. Uh, we build tech to replace what a junior would do, uh, which some people might be ethically opposed to. But, um, yeah, there's... We don't actually hire juniors. Um, so as we grow, we will look to reinvest our profit, and we already do reinvest our profit, back into technology um, to actually help automate part of our jobs. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how Tiny CX grows, Tom. Thank you. Thank you very much, Liam. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to Comsec economist Craig James. Well, Craig James, what can investors inspect for the following week? Uh, well, I think the the major focus will be you know so the the data on on Wednesday you know so the wage price index. Now we do know that you know so inflation is very much uh, contained at the moment. Uh, the question is what's happening with, with wages, and it, it's interesting the degree of discussion that we've had in terms of wages and prices you know, over time. A lot of people are focusing on wages and that wage growth is is uh, too low. Uh, compared with what we've seen in, in the past. But the major reason why wages are rising at a much slower pace than in the past is because prices are rising at a much slower rate than in the past. And, and I think the, the, what we can put that down to is the fact that consumers nowadays can buy goods whenever they want and wherever they are. And what that means is that um, there's more competition for, for businesses. It's not just local businesses, but it's also overseas firms which are competing for, for, for sales you know, nowadays. And while ever that's uh, the case, it's going to put downward pressure on, on prices. And we've seen that. We do know that inflation, if you average out inflation um, uh, over you know, sort of a, a, a period of a couple of years and whatnot, you know, so that you would see that the long-term average of inflation is close to the lowest that we've seen in the order of 50 years. So it's quite a remarkable development. Now, clearly, if businesses are finding it hard to, to um, pay out, uh, to lift their, their, their own prices, they're going to be finding it hard to, to pay wage increases. And I think that's one of the, the key things that's occurring at the, market, at the moment. So what we had in the, the first quarter of this year, or likely to see in the first quarter of this year, is that um, wages probably rose by 
0.5 or 0.6%. We're slowly starting to see that wage growth starting to, to push up. So 2.3% at the moment in terms of wage growth. I think we'll start to see that move up to 2.4 or 2.5%. If you add in bonuses, you know, so we're getting closer up to, to the order 3%. So we know that the job markets have been tightening. Uh, that means that uh, wages are more likely to, to, to be rising in this sort of environment. But I think we, we should get rid of the, the notion that wages are going to get back to the levels like three and a half, four percent, you know, sort of in, in the short term. It's just going to take a much longer period to be able to do that, to get up to those sorts of levels, um, given the fact that um, inflation is stubbornly low. Well, given that uh, our inflation came in at zero percent in the first uh, three months of this year, that would indicate uh, we've got a very slow way ahead, haven't we? Well, I, I would say that's very much the, the, the case. Um, uh, you look at underlying prices as well, you know, so levels like 0.3 or 0.4%. So uh, it, it is a lot more difficult for employers to be able to pay out you know, some wages in this sort of environment. Now, um, it is what it means for, for businesses is they're, they're finding it hard to be able to uh, retain and secure uh, the, the sort of workers that they need. And uh, they're having to look at other ways of being able to do that and try and make the work environment uh, much more um, well, you know, attractive, if you like, you know, sort of for, for ordinary individuals, you know, so rather than focusing on wage increases, you know, sort of uh, each and every time. And, and fortunately, the, the Gen Ys, we know, that are actually warming to that, you know, so they you know, would prefer an environment where they feel, you know, sort of comfortable in, you know, sort of sometimes in preference to, to, to wage increases. But, um, um, I think what we need to, to always focus on when we're talking about wages and prices is that you need to basically look at those both together rather than separate. Everyone's concerned about the fact that wages are growing at a lot slower rate in the past, but we've still got wage prices or the, you know, so the, the level of wages growing at a faster rate than prices. So the affordability of a whole raft of goods has continued to improve over time for the simple fact is that um, price growth is a lot lower than what we're seeing in terms of wage increases. So wage growth and price and inflation are inextricably linked, and so we have to bear both in mind. Yeah, very much the the case, very much the case. And um, uh, and, and we've got to remember, too, this is a different sort of environment that we're working in now compared with the, the, the past. Um, you, know, you go back five years, ten years ago, um, clearly you wouldn't have had the same degree of competition that's coming through in t terms of... Um, uh, overseas firms, or you know, so even you know, so the likes of domestically, you know, so the online um, organisations, you know, so like uh, Amazon. Um, in in terms of um, wages, we should always you know, so be looking at in relation to what we can buy in in terms of uh, goods. Um, the other encouraging thing, I think, in terms of the environment, is the fact that jobs continue to grow. So perhaps, you know, so wages are growing at a slower rate than in the past, but that enables businesses to, to put able to put on additional workers. Now, that puts in focus the, the data coming out on Thursday, the employment data, and that's probably the, the last major piece of economic data before the election. Uh, we saw um, employment rise by almost 26,000 uh, in um, March and um, the unemployment rate sitting at 5%. And our view is that we'll get another sort of similar 
similar sort of increase in, in terms of the April numbers. Uh, jobs increasing by around about 20,000. The unemployment rate remaining at 5%. We've got to remember... 5% unemployment is, is pretty much close to, to the lowest levels that were seen in the order of a decade. And we look at the situation in New South Wales and Victoria, the unemployment rate in trend terms is either at uh, or very, very close to the lowest rates that we've ever seen. So um, we may bemoan the sort of wage increases that we're getting, but it's actually creating jobs and allowing more people you know, into to the workforce. Uh, long term, where do you see unemployment heading, the unemployment figures heading? Um, well, I think we can continue to chip away at the, that unemployment rate and we can see you know, sort of a broadening of the, the base in terms of jobs creating. So uh, if the job market gets too tight in places like in New South Wales and Victoria, clearly we are going to see more workers um, who are, may be disaffected in places like uh, Western Australia, may even be parts of you know, Tasmania and South Australia saying the opportunities lie elsewhere. And we're going to see you know, sort of some of those unemployed workers starting to move a little bit, you know, sort of, and that will enable you know, sort of unemployment rates to, to converge on lower levels rather than you know, sort of have the disparity indicators that we've got where we've got some areas of um, Sydney and Melbourne where you've got 25 3% uh, unemployment. Then you've got other parts of Australia where the unemployment rates are up around about 8-odd you know, sort of percent. So... Um, uh, I think we are moving into a, a golden period in terms of um, uh, job growth. Um, and um, um, you look at the indicators that we have at the moment, we have relatively low um, interest rates, relatively low inflation. We've got a trade surplus. We've got the budget basically back into to surplus. We've got an economy which continues to, to grow. Um, and I think... Um, we can look forward to uh, continued uh, prosperity and continued uh, job growth. I don't think we should be frightened by that unemployment rate falling to levels perhaps like 4.5%. In the past, 5% would be considered full employment here in Australia. But I think, you know, so as we've seen in the, the United States, they've got an unemployment rate of 3.6% and they've got wa wage growth in the order of 3.2%. So just because you've got... Uh, unemployment rate at the lowest levels in 50 years, you don't necessarily see wages going through the, the roof. And I think we're going to see the similar sort of situation in Australia that will start to, to creep back to, towards around about 4.5% in terms of the unemployment rate um, and perhaps push even lower in us in the future. And uh, do we, we also have an NAB survey this week, don't we? Yes, we do, and uh, we're likely to see very, very cautious uh, results, I think, from in terms of confidence and, and business conditions. Clearly, when you're in an election environment, um, people tend to be more sitting on the sidelines, more you know, sort of doing business as usual rather than you know, sort of going into, um, into new areas, increasing you know, sort of jobs in a particular way, increasing um, investment in any particular way. So I think we're going to see that reflected in the the NAB business survey. A lot of people were sitting on their, their hands waiting for the um, um, the election to get out of the road. Same with Westpac Consumer Confidence on, on the Wednesday. So NAB is on the Tuesday in terms of the uh, business conditions and business confidence index. Westpac Consumer Confidence Index coming out on, on Wednesday. Um, and um, 
while confidence was up in the last reading, the reading for, for April, um, I think you know, just like for, for the NAB business survey, we're going to see a, a fairly flat reading for consumer confidence until we get this election out of the road. Uh, clearly, you know, so the election, you know, sort of, it, it's very much you know, sort of um, uh, evenly poised. So we can expect fairly flat results for NAB and consumer confidence until we know what the election, who the next government will be. Yes, I think so. I mean, you're sort of people, you know, sort of really not doing too much in terms of new activity, yes, in the current environment, not getting, yes, too far ahead of themselves. Um, we've seen that in terms of some of the, the previous data that we've had um, on, uh, and of course, we will have that data out um, also over the week, uh, the, the home loan figures. Um, owner-occupied home loans holding up okay, supported by first-home buyers, uh, but investors, they remain very, very much on the sidelines, and uh, that's hardly a surprise given the fact that uh, the, the Labor opposition are proposing you know, sort of changes um, in terms of uh, negative gearing and, and the like. So clearly, you know, so any of those changes from Labor will have to get through the, the upper house, they have to get through the, the Senate, but... Um, yeah, if you're uh, a budding investor, if you're um, in business at the moment, um, you're going to be playing things very, very cautiously until uh, the election result is known. Well, Craig James, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Donald Trump ramped up pressure on China to finalise a trade deal during talks in Washington this week. Trump has dramatically threatened to shatter a five-month trade war truce by announcing tariff hikes on more than US $525 billion, or $752 billion Aussie, of Chinese goods because Beijing is moving too slowly on a deal. The sudden escalation in a series of incendiary Sunday afternoon tweets coincides with another round of talks due to resume between the two sides this week in Washington, and after negotiations continued in Beijing last week. Mr Trump said tariffs on US $200 billion worth of goods from China will increase on Friday to 25% from 10%. The President originally planned to impose a 25% hit on January the 1st, but agreed to hold fire after he and China's President Xi Jinping agreed on December the 1st to a 90-day ceasefire. That deadline expired in early March and was extended indefinitely by Mr Trump. In addition, Mr Trump said a further US $325 billion worth of goods now subject to no additional tariffs will also be slugged 25% on Friday. The expanded tariffs will cover most of China's exports to the US. The trade deal with China continues but too slowly as they attempt to renegotiate. No, Mr Trump wrote in a tweet on Sunday afternoon. The President credited the US economy's great strength on existing tariffs on Chinese goods, which were introduced last year and include a 25% rate on a further US $50 billion worth of high-tech goods. And the surprise hitch in trade talks between the United States and China spooked investors, sending global stocks tumbling. Wall Street's nerve is being seriously tested for the first time this year. Already, jittery investors appear to lose their cool as markets in the US barrel through their final hour of trading in a blur of spiking volatility and collapsing valuations. At its bleakest point, the benchmark Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled 648 points before a brief rally in the minutes before the bell saw it close the session on Tuesday, down 473 points, or 1.8%. The S&P 500 index fell 1.6%, ended weaker too, despite closing off the session's lows, posting its broadest day of declines since the Christmas Eve sell-off. 
The euro first 300 index closed down 0.9% and China's CSI 300 index of major Shanghai and Shenzhen listed stocks tumbled 5.8%, marking its worst day since February 2016. On Wednesday, the ASX 200 index had fallen 0.8% to 6,237. Every sector is in the red, with technology down 2.1% and energy down 1.5% being the weakest performers. Investors are worried that additional tariffs, if imposed, could interrupt supply chains and hamper economic growth. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has signalled that it could cut interest rates to new record lows if the jobless rate does not fall below its current 5% after it's kept its 1.5% cash rate on hold and trimmed its economic growth forecasts. Resisting financial market pressure for a pre-election interest rate cut, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said the bank recognised that there was still spare capacity in the economy and downgraded its economic growth forecast to about 2.75% in 2019, from 3%. And ANZ Australian job advertisements showed some stability in April, with a close to unchanged result after five successive large monthly declines. In seasonally adjusted terms, job ads fell just 0.1% for the month, to be down 5.6% for the year. This was an improvement on the 6% yearly decline recorded for March and the smallest monthly decline since it was a small increase in October last year. In trend terms, job ads dropped 0.9% for the month to be down a large 6.3% for the year. This is the largest annual fall in the trend series since January 2014. In the March quarter, 2019 Census Business Index has revealed that Australian small and medium business confidence fell significantly across the country following last quarter's highs. Confidence levels decreased 16 points to 34, its lowest level since March 2016. And Australian retail sales rose by 0.3% in March, following an upwardly revised 0.9% gain in February. Markets were expecting sales to lift by 0.2% during the month. However, the improvement in recent months largely reflects higher prices, not turnover levels. And Westpac Banking Corporation said its first half cash profit fell 22% to $3.296 billion because of ongoing compensation costs and its decision to exit the loss-making personal finance advice market. The bank's crucial net interest margin, the profitable gap between what Westpac pays to borrow money and the rate it lends it out at, dropped sharply from 228 to 2.12%. Costs at the bank rose 1% to $5.041 billion from $5.007 billion from the previous half. However, after major remediation and restructuring items were stripped out, costs were down 3%. The number of staff at the bank measured by full-time equivalents fell by 788, or 2%, to 34,241 from 35,029. Westpac has also warned lending growth will continue to slow to 3% in the bank's current financial year, 2.5% in the next one, putting further pressure on earnings over that period. The bank is expecting home prices to remain soft and home building activity to fall. The weakness in the housing market, as well as an increasing number of borrowers rolling off interest-only loans onto principal and interest, is resulting in a rise in mortgage delinquencies. The proportion of borrowers at least 30 days behind on their home loan has risen from 1.4% in September to 1.59% at the end of March. The share of Westpac home loan customers more than 90 days behind has risen more sharply from 0.72 to 0.82%, which Westpac said is partly to do with lower market activity leading to customers remaining in collections for longer as it takes longer to sell repossessed homes. Westpac said it had made 
$1.445 billion in pre-tax provisions for customer compensation work, with $1.249 billion poised to go directly in the hands of customers. The bank also singled out the impact of the major bank levy on its financial performance. And Westpac and the corporate regulator have returned to court for the first day of a potential eight-day hearing on responsible lending, which could have wide ramifications for other banks in the home loan market. ASIC sued Westpac for irresponsibly approving loans that it shouldn't have. Both sides agreed to settle the case, but the court refused to approve the deal. $35 million would have been a record penalty for breaching national credit laws. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission accused Westpac of breaking the law when it approved loans using the household expenditure measure a relatively low estimate of basic living expenses, rather than customers' actual declared living costs in its automated loan approval system. The regulator also alleged Westpac failed to properly assess whether applicants could afford to repay interest-only loans after the loan switched to higher principal and interest repayments. Both parties reached settlement last year, with Westpac admitting it breached the National Consumer Credit Protection Act and agreeing to pay a record $35 million civil penalty. But the federal court, in a highly unusual move, refused to approve the settlement, forcing both sides to relitigate their case. And Gina Reinhardt has won the latest stage of the marathon battle with the children over mining royalties in the High Court, and the case will now be heard behind closed doors. Mrs Reinhardt's two eldest children, Bianca and John, wanted a dispute over deeds that reduced the holdings of the four children in three Pilbara mines from 49% to 24%, heard by a judge. However, the nation's top court ruled on Wednesday that Mrs Reinhardt could enforce a clause which said all grievances would be settled by confidential arbitration instead of a hearing in the open court. And one of the toughest advertising markets for the last decade has forced radio network Macquarie Media to downgrade its earnings expectations for 2018-19. Macquarie Media has warned it now expects earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation to come in between $27 million and $29 million for the 2018-19 financial year, down from previous guidance of between $29 million and $32 million. The company said trading conditions have fallen below expectations in a statement to the Australian Securities Exchange. Macquarie Media is 54.4% owned by Nine, publisher of the Australian Financial Review, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Nine acquired the stake in Macquarie Media as part of its $4 billion merger with Fairfax Media, which completed in December 2018. Nine is keen to buy out the stake in Macquarie Media it doesn't already own, but has not yet made a move. And Deloitte must supply further laptop containing data of its audits of failed retailer Dick Smith after failing to strike out claims made in two shareholder class actions that allege the firm's accounting work on the retailer was negligent. The order over the laptop, issued on April the 24th, came after the court ruled against the firm's application early in the month to strike out the claim, saying that and did not outline what the firm should have done. The class actions alleged that had Dick Smith's financial statements been corrected or qualified audit opinion issued in respect of them, the retailer would not have floated and been listed on the ASX, and the class action shareholders would not have acquired their shares, according to the judgment of a strikeout application by New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Michael Ball. The shareholders, who have also made claims against the liquidated Dick Smith entity ex-CEO Nick Abood and ex-CFO Michael Potts, allege that Dick Smith did not currently account for its inventory, meaning that the retailer's financial statements did not give a true and fair view of its financial position in the 2013, 14 and 15 financial years. Deloitte's failure to identify these inventory issues during its audits of the company meant the firm failed to conduct its audits according to the required auditing standards and 
did not exercise reasonable skill and care and engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct, according to the class actions. Dick Smith was floated by Anchorage Capital Partners in December 2013 for $520 million, but went into voluntary administration in January 2016 and was placed into liquidation in July 2016. The collapse was caused by factors that included a rebate-driven culture that led to excessive inventory. Inventories at the retailer increased from $171 million to $293 million between June 2013 and June 2015. Dick Smith also wrote down $60 million worth of inventory in late 2015. And Hong Kong's GMT Research claimed Australia's biggest construction group, CIMIC, had used accounting shenanigans to inflate pre-tax profits by $1 billion over the past two years. CIMIC, which is building one of Australia's biggest infrastructure projects, including Sydney's $16.8 billion West Connex motorway and the Melbourne Metro, had been dressing up its financial statements since it was acquired by Spanish construction group ACS in 2014. CIMIC had taken an aggressive approach to revenue recognition, consistently recognising large amounts of unbilled revenues that added about $400 million to profits in 2017-18, GMT said. And Rio Tinto has invited the big American Caterpillar to deliver 20-haul trucks, four autonomous drill rigs, and all the loaders, bulldozers, water carters and diggers that will be needed at what will eventually be the Anglo-Australian's biggest Pilbara mining complex. The deal effectively makes Caterpillar the exclusive provider to a project that Rio bills as the first digitally intelligent mine. And the good news doesn't stop there for Caterpillar and its Australian dealer, the Kerry Stokes Control West Track. This contract covers only the 43 million tonnes a year first phase of Kudari High Tech Future. But Rio's ultimate aim is to lift production. To make that happen will require more fleet and all things being equal it is hard to imagine that Rio would shift equipment providers halfway through the race to planned capacity. Until now, Rio has retrofitted its existing mining fleet with the still-evolving digital technologies that have revolutionised the way miners work. Dari is the first mine that has been designed and built to best utilise the two generations of in-house innovation that is Rio's trademark Mine of the Future project. Rio's robots will arrive with a high level of predictive intelligence that will then be enhanced by what its machines learn. For example, experience will hone the robot's ability to prioritise individual and group needs. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tony Nash, the founder and CEO of Booktopia, the Australian competitor to Amazon. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bring you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 